The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. But steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade, you'd like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in properly. Thank you, Brian. Uh, And a quick thank you that uh, should not be quick, but could take all the day long to Justine and Katie Harrington, uh, who did all and everything for VBS. So thank you guys. If our children don't uh, think as church as their favorite place and Sunday as their favorite day, we're doing something very wrong. And so uh, thank you all for eating your Wheaties and getting active this morning. I hope you've gotten your your steps in and your calories all checked off on your smart watches. Um, Well, this morning we are in the second week of our Fruit of the Spirit uh, summer series where we're looking at the Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And it tells us kind of what what the Christian life should be marked by, that when God gets a hold of you, he does something. And actually you can see it and he engages you and he does something with you. And, And there's a list. And when we see that list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all nine, when you see the list, it's easy to look at it like it's um, a checklist. And it's like a home buying process, that, that love is four bedrooms. You want four bedrooms in a house. Not, two is nice, three is better, but four is great. And then joy is like that back, big back patio entertaining space with a TV mounted where you watch the balls lose every Saturday in the fall. And then uh, patience and peace are like, uh, they're like that pool in the backyard. If you could have your pool, you'd be, it, it's great. And you could have love and peace and joy, that's great too. We just know that when we have that checklist of a home buying, it's in a home somewhere, somebody has that, all those things, but we don't. It feels like, yeah, those are all good things and we would want them if we could have them, but we just can't because my life looks a lot different and I maybe have one or two or three on a good day. And what this whole entire sermon series is about and what really all of the fruit of the spirit is about is the fact that God is at work in your life. And you may only have one or two that you really do find real root in right this moment. But the thing is, God always, is, he's got a process. He always is committed to you. And so he will work out these things out in seasons and, and we're all growing together. So uh, take shame out of the room because uh, you should feel none if things that we talk about each and every week aren't prominent in your life because God's up to something. And this week, uh, we'll look at joy. And if we're honest, uh, the view of joy that we have and the view that joy the Bible offers us this morning, uh, there's a bit of a dissonance. 
that if we could define joy, it'd be light and airy and uh, maybe experience-oriented and easy. And the Bible, especially here in James 1, talks about how uh, you find joy in moments of tension and rigor and of hardship. And it's not alone in James 1. It's actually throughout the whole story of Scripture that oftentimes when joy is mentioned, often, not always, but often, it's always in the context of really hard things. And actually, those two things go together. They're not separate. And so this morning, as we're talking about joy, uh, you may think to yourself, how can I be joyful because X, Y, or Z has happened to me? Something has happened to me where joy would make it an impossibility to have it be evident in my life. Something's happened to me. And and I really do want to give a caveat to that very thought. Um, We are sinners. If I'm the first person to tell you that, I'm sorry I broke the news. We are people who, uh, we are not the way we should be, and we are not the way we are going to be. We are people who are marked and marred in sin and misery, and we don't choose what we should do, and what we shouldn't do, we do, right? That makes up our lives. At the same time that we are sinners, we are sufferers. Things happen to you. Things happen around you. You are the object of chaos at times. So when we talk about joy, and especially in light of trials, which James 1 tells us, I want uh, to give the caveat of if you are amidst suffering, I do not, this is not a chance to beat you up or to make you feel shamed or to ostracize your experience. Because remember, we are sinners, but, but we're also sufferers. And so because we are both those things, God's word is actually a balm. It helps us heal. And that's the aim of it. And so uh, with that in mind, we'll look at three things this morning. We'll look at uh, the place of joy, uh, the, the, the product of joy, And then third, the price of joy. And as we begin, let's uh, pray and ask God to bless the study of his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, if if you don't show up, uh, this is all just uh, naive therapy. And yet you've promised that when you, your people, when we read your word, And when it is preached, that the Holy Spirit comes and shows us things about ourselves and shows us things about our own hearts and shows us things about Jesus that we could never fully understand. And so this very day, I beg of you, Holy Spirit, move. We long to know joy more fully. Not our own versions of it, our own uh, definitions of it, but your definition and your version. And we long to know true joy this morning. Would you forgive the sins of the one who brings your word for their many? And would you disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed this very day? Holy Spirit, the one who gives us every single fruit as we abide in you, we pray in your name, Christ. Amen. So first, the, the place of joy. James is a New Testament book, and he weds together uh, the Old Testament book of wisdom, Proverbs, and the Sermon on the Mount. 
He weds them together and gives us a New Testament book of wisdom. And James is also Jesus' brother. And so he's writing to uh, the people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. And what's happening after Jesus has ascended into heaven, after he's lived his life, died his death, and was resurrected, he ascends to heaven, and then stuff starts growing like crazy. That, that the church grows in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world. It, it's moving outward. It's always moving and missional and, and going. And yet, James is at the nucleus, kind of the, the mother church in Jerusalem as it's going out. He's holding the fort down, and he's, he's the head of the Jerusalem church. And so he's writing to a people who are uh, Jewish Christians. And so because they're Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, you can expect that there is persecution because they've left the, the beliefs of Judaism and, and kept and upheld and accepted the thoughts of Christianity. There's persecution and there's, there's famine and there's poverty that marks the Jerusalem church. And yet right out of the gate, James in verse two, verse one, said, hey, I'm James, I'm James. Uh, my name is James. Uh, verse two, right out of the gate, he's very clear and he gets to the heart of the matter. He wastes no time at all. And he says in verse two, he talks about how having joy in trials. Hey, sufferers in Jerusalem, people I know, you know me, who are, uh, don't have much money or clout, and uh, we are in a hard time, uh, have joy in trials. And he's writing this to the people in, in that time and place, and also us today, because we are a people marked and marred with trials. Again, we're sinners and we're sufferers. Things happen to us. We are marked and marred by trials. And he's also writing that very thought, joy and trials, because he's saying to them and us that we as humans are meaning makers, that we write stories. Whenever you see dots, you have to connect them. Whenever you see gaps, you have to fill them in, no matter where in life or when in life. We are people who make meaning of the things, of the, the data that we see. We take the raw materials and produce something in it, some kind of meaning, some kind of story and narrative to make sense of it all. Whether it's, or something's wrong in your car and it's smoking and, and on fire and you're thinking it's the flux capacitor. It's got to be that. We'll f- fix that. Or, or you know why the stock market goes down and up because of this one very thing. Or you look in uh, kind of social circles and there are current events that happen and you look at someone who's done something to someone else and you're like, that's why. That's it. You know? and gossip flares up. No matter what it is, we are people who take the raw data of life, take it in, and connect dots and try to make meaning of it all. We love to have stories that make sense of our world because we are meaning makers. We have to make sense of it. And yet, while this is good to keep things neat and tidy and explainable, it runs into parts of life that we really can't explain that we really don't know why. It's good in principle, but really if it's a precedent in life, it's an impossibility because we can't make sense of every single thing that comes up in our lives. Because oftentimes the hardest parts of our lives are the parts that we have to reckon with. And when we can't make sense of it, we find this deep tension. We find a deep tension. 
Charles Taylor is this philosopher, uh, Canadian philosopher, who wrote a book about the size of the floor to my hand, and it's called The Secular Age. I have not read that book, but you should read it. Uh, it's, and he, he, he has this main thought in it, A Secular Age is the book called, and he says, we're living in a, a secular age because in modernity, in modern times, what has happened is uh, people have taken the transcendence, the transcendent thought, the thought that something is going on that's greater than me, something, there's a higher power up to something, takes that thought and throws it out and only lives with the imminent. And he calls it the imminent frame. That, that in modernity, we throw out the, uh, the thought of any higher meaning or higher power, and we like to live in the imminent frame, the things that are around us and that happen to us and to others, so that we can explain it. We keep it close, and we like to parse it out and connect the dots and make meaning and stories and make sense of it all. And of that book that's very thick, uh, someone wrote a Reader's Digest version of that book. And in that Reader's Digest version of that book, James Smith says this. He says, the secular age is a level playing field. We're all trying to make sense of where we are and even why we are, and it's not easy for any of us. That when we live in the imminent frame in the secular age, we try to make sense of where we are and why we are, and guess what? It's really hard to do. It's not easy on any of us. When we usurp the transcendent meaning to all of life and all the things that happen, what we're left with is a scramble to figure out why things happen, what's going on. We live in the imminent frame where we are the kings and queens and make sense of it all. We instill immediate meaning because it's a godless occurrence, and it's no wonder that when we believe in that and live into that, that there's angst that builds. It's not easy on any of us. If you um, got to be a fly on the wall in our home, uh, you would know that I am a circumstantial curmudgeon, that whenever something pops up or flares up, I will quickly be Ebenezer Scrooge and just throw uh, everything out because I am the totality of what's happening in and around and to me. I am a circumstantial curmudgeon, and my wife is wonderful because she draws me out of it, helps me see things a little more clearly, and picks me up and dusts me off, and she's so great at it. And what you're thinking is, how kind, how sweet, what a, what a great woman. She is great. And my response to you is, no. No. Not because she's wrong, but because she's right. She's right in drawing me out of the fact that I'm a circumstantial curmudgeon, that uh, I, all of a sudden I get so wound up in what's happening that the only thing that's happening to me is, is bad and there's nothing good that can come of it. I don't like her advice because she's wrong, but because she's right. Because when I feel and experience something, when we feel and experience something, we love to be consumed with it because when we're consumed with it, at least we have license to feel and do whatever we want. When we live in the imminent frame, we have license to respond however we want because we are the ones that explain it and make sense of it, the things that happen to us. You could be angry, anxious, busy, belittling, critical, 
despondent. Those are only the first four letters of the alphabet. We can go on and on and on. That when we are consumed with the things that happen to us and around us, we love it when it defines everything who we are. And yet, that's Satan's game. Because Satan's game loves to whisper to us, everything that is happening to you is all of you. All of your circumstances is all of your identity. And therefore, you are only as healed as you're hurt and will only be healed as you're hurt. You will only always be as, as healthy as your wound. You will only always be as full as your hunger and your desire for something. And you'll be only as content as you lack something. You'll only be satisfied as long as you have something you want. Satan's game is the imminent frame in the sense that what we see is all around us. And what that is defines everything who we are. Because we usurp any kind of meaning. We take away any kind of meaning that maybe something else is happening. And James gives us a a clarifying thought to wisdom in life and trials in life and the thought of what our suffering does and what it can be. And he's saying, I'm giving you a bigger vision where you can actually find joy. And he says, the place of joy, the place of joy is not where we feel ease and comfort, but actually the place of joy says, is where we feel tension and rigor and hardships. Not because he's unaware of what life is, but because he is so aware of what life is. He's leaning into the human experience and saying, not if you have trials, but when you have trials of various kinds, of all kinds. He's not saying there's a hierarchy of trials. He knows everybody. Nobody's got it easy. And he's saying, that's actually where the place of joy is. In verse one, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it, define it, name it, call it that thing. Because that thing is longing for you to be called by it, defined by it. Count it. Consider it joy. Count it joy. The very same word is used by Paul in Philippians 3 when he's saying, hey, Philippian church, um, I've got this resume. It's pretty stout. And in Philippians 3, he says this. He says, if anyone has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, a zeal for the church, persecuting the church, as for the righteousness based on the law, faultless. But wherever it gains to me, I now consider, I now count a loss for the sake of Christ. James here is freeing us from the temptation of living at the mercy of the things that we so often are defined by. Whatever circumstances mark your life are asking of you to be totally defined by. You are only as healed as your hurt. You're only as good as your liability. And yet James here says it's more beautiful than that because the places of trials aren't there to name you. You're there to name it, to count it, to consider it joy. 
Trials is a place of testing, not because it's an exam where you have to uh, prove to God you love him and try to receive God's love if you pass the test. It's a test in the sense that he's longing to invite you into the fact there could be more meaning than what we see around us. So this morning, I want to ask you the question that I have to ask myself. Jared mentioned last week that when you, we, we preach these topics, that God jumps on our own hearts because we are the first persons that need to hear this. My question for you this morning is, what dashboard lights are going off in your life that are speaking to you in your trials? The anger, the angst, the anxiety, the, the, the bitterness on and on. If the dashboard lights signal that something is going on, oil needs to be changed, a sensor is bad, fill in the blank with your car, if there's a dashboard light of your heart, what is it telling you as you are living in the tension of trials and the hardships and the rigor? It's in those places that we daydream and that we long for and the emotions that we feel that Jesus is saying, won't you trade those things in for the joy I can give you? because I'm up to something. You don't have to live in the imminent frame any longer. The place of joy is the place of trials. Not because we're gullible, but because we're hungry for something greater and more beautiful. But also we see not just the place of joy, but there's a product of joy. James tells us there's a product of joy. The only way that we can um, go through trials is if it gives us something that sticks. If it gives us something that will help us go the distance to win the day. And James here gives us a vision for uh, trials and that there's joy in them because he says, guess what? You'll lack nothing. Consider it joy when you go through trials of various kinds because you'll, have, you'll be complete. You'll lack nothing. Every Christmas movie uh, involves characters. Um, pff, surprise. Um, involves characters uh, that have some desire in them and they want to have a good time and are experienced and they run up against some resistance to it, whether it's in themselves or people around them or what's going on. And Christmas Vacation is no anomaly to that, no exception. And Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase is this guy who has had a great growing up and memorable and nostalgic Christmases with his family. And he's an adult now, and he has kids now, and he wants to give his children the same warm, fun, memorable, safe, connected, all the above, experience of Christmas that he had. So what he does is that to accomplish all of those things, he puts lights all over his house, and he goes, and he buys all these gifts, and then he goes and wants to take his Christmas bonus he's going to get, to put it towards a pool so his family can swim and have fun and gather and laugh and all this stuff. And so when he uh, kind of takes the first step towards that goal of having a loving, fun, connected family, he puts the lights up on the house and he goes and he invites everyone out and he says, all right, guys, get ready. And he gets a switch, the master switch, and he says, joy to the world, flicks it on, and nothing happens. What he's doing is he's not saying joy to the world because these lights are here. Joy to the world because I'm going to light up the neighborhood. 
What he's saying is, joy to the world because what these lights are gonna do for me is give me something. What these lights are gonna do for me is create a memory in my children that Christmas was fun and I love my family and I love the, the house I grew up in and the pool in the back that my dad used with his Christmas bonus. He's using joy as an avenue for something else. And guess what? When we desire joy, we always desire something more than joy. To get joy from joy is really not that joyful. But when we get something else and beautiful and satisfying from joy, that's when joy really is the way it's supposed to be. And actually, that's what James tells us. Because James tells us in verse 3, he says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. This word perfect, he uses over and over again, seven times in his letter. And what he's saying is, you'll be perfect when you have joy and trials, steadfastness, and that steadfastness gives you perfection it's this idea that there's a wholeness to you. There's a fully integrated life that you, you consist across the board perfectly. You aren't scattered. You are the whole woman and whole man you are supposed to be. The product of joy is not more joy. The product of joy is the way you're supposed to be, wholeness. Because the mission of God wasn't just to come and do what he did for the sake of doing what he did. He did everything he's done in all of redemptive history, in all of the Bible. It's a whole story about this very fact. He has come to make you whole again. What was lost in the garden is going to be reality one day. He is on a mission of reclaiming your wholeness. That's the very reason he came. He's, he's not having trials be cosmic comedy. He's not having trials be a test to see if you're good enough. He's come and he's using things that are meant for harm for good. And he's saying, I'm going to make you whole again. That's my number one priority. And the paradoxical process that he uses to do that are the hardships and the rigor and the pain. I want to be very clear about we are sinners you are a sufferer. And I don't mean to say what I just said about the paradoxical process to be salt in a wound. I say that to tell you and remind you God's up to something and he longs to give you joy, to give you wholeness and to give myself wholeness. We lack nothing when we lack everything. That's not a kitschy saying or, or cute or cheeky or an opioid. It's actually something that wins the day. It's a robust hope. Because there are things in your life that you want that to be true in. Because you've had nothing before. And maybe right now you have nothing. And maybe the high king has sent me here today to tell you that's when you have everything. And... Uh, the sermon series right before this, we looked at Mark, and we'll catch back up in the fall. 
And in Mark 10, two weeks ago, Jared talked about blind Bartimaeus. He's this blind beggar. And Jesus has literally, it's the last story before he goes into the triumphal entry, into the cross. The last thing he does before he, the, the, the Passion Week is this. He encounters a beggar who pleads for mercy. And he heals his blindness. And right before that, we see a son, or a son who's possessed by a demon, and his father takes him to the disciples. And when Jesus sees him, he says, Jesus is told by this father who's desperate, and he says, Lord, if you can do anything, have mercy on us. Pity us. Help us. If you can do it, please. I'm out of options. And he heals his son. When you have nothing, you have everything because that's the very thing that reminds you Jesus is up to something in your life. He's making you more whole. He's making you more like his son. He's making you more holy. One pastor put it this way. He said, we may wonder if there are shortcuts to holiness, to wholeness. And there are some, but once you find out what they are, humiliation and suffering, you'll probably prefer to walk another road. When you have nothing, humiliation and suffering, the paradoxical process, it's when you have everything because you're being made more and more whole. It's, he's there to walk through with us in our trials, not to hurt us, but to heal us. And Lord of the Rings, the first of the three movies, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, Side note, I've never quoted Lord of the Rings before. This is my first time. Pastors do it all the time. This is my first time. So haven't beat that horse dead yet. In the first movie, Lord of the Rings, it's the opening scene. There's this big old party for Bilbo Baggins. It's his birthday. It's his 111th birthday. And he is there, and he sneaks away. And he sneaks away and goes back to his house and is packing his things for his journey to go away. And what he's promised Gandalf, uh, the, this wizard, uh, wise friend, is that he will give uh, Gandalf, before he leaves, the one ring to rule them all. And he will, he will purge it from himself, give it to Gandalf, go on his journey. Because then the ring will go and be taken to uh, the, the volcano, Middle Earth, Mount Doom, that's what it's called, and uh, be thrown in there and destroyed. And as he's promised to do it, it's time to come that actually for him to give it away. And he begins to realize it's actually a lot harder to give away than he thought. And he looks at it and he says, you know, why shouldn't I be able to keep this? What, my precious, why can't I keep this? And then he begins to turn on Gandalf and says, you know what, Gandalf, you want this ring because you want it for yourself. And you're going to take it from me for your own good. And quickly and loudly and yet gently, Gandalf says to him, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And the trials that we feel in our lives where the heat is great and the rigor is much and the tension can be cut with a knife. God is telling us he's not here to hurt us, not here to rob us, He's here to help us. He's here to heal us. He's here to make us more whole. The product of joy is the fact that we get wholeness, 
not fragmentation or scatteredness, but in the trials, the place of joy, we are made more whole. And lastly, we see the price of joy. The only way for the place of joy, of trials, to be something good, and where we get something good, is this, is that if what we get is paid for in full, that there's no question about what we get. In Matthew 4, Jesus, uh, in Matthew 3, he's baptized. In Matthew 4, he goes immediately into the wilderness. He goes out uh, into the wild, into the desert. And he's being tempted by Satan. And Satan is tempting him in all these really grand ways to give up his mission of why he came, to give up his mission of the cross. That's always what Satan's trying to do, is for, to give up for Jesus to forsake the mission that, and the will of God. And he passes the test. He passes the trial. He gets through it. And the very same idea of our testing and our trials is seen in Matthew 4. He passed the test of Satan in the wilderness and he'll pass the test on the cross of trying to to give up. Satan is trying to make him give up the cup of God's wrath. And yet he says, Is there any way for this cup to pass? If not, let your will be done, not my will, Lord. And he passed the test on the cross by taking on the judgment. The only way for our joy in James, as we're told to take up joy in our suffering, is if our suffering and our joy is framed by Jesus' suffering and Jesus' joy. If our tests are framed and connected to Jesus' tests and his trials. We're invited to think about the price that bought us joy. Joy can be possible for us because it's purchased, purchased in full for us. My wife sent me a text this week as an encouragement and a reminder of what this whole text is about. And she said this. She said, why are joy and sorrow so often in close proximity? They are both at the feet of Jesus. We take our suffering to the feet of Jesus and we get a glimpse of our Savior. When we get a glimpse of our Savior, we are filled up with a true source of joy. We can feel comfort and joy in our trials because when we go to the place of his trial, that's where joy was bought and purchased for us, period. God is not making his mind up about you. In Hebrews Uh, The the person who wrote Hebrews is saying, Jesus is better than all these different things. He's amazing. He's he's better than this. He's better than this. He's superior. And then he gets to the very end of the book and he says, oh yeah, by the way, as you're living life, do this. And in Hebrews 12, he says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. As you're, you're running the race that you're, that's marked out for you, the life that God has given you, the lot in things, the lot in life that God has called you to, here's how you do it. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. Not the imminent frame, but the one who's transcendent, the one who's up to something, who's making meaning that's more beautiful and, and believable than our meaning. And here's why. Because of for the joy set before him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
It was the joy on the other side of the cross that let Jesus, allowed Jesus to go through the suffering of the cross, the humiliation of the cross. What was it? It was you and I. For the joy set before him is you and I, which means this, which you get to go to the mirror in your bathroom and you get to tell yourself, I am the joy that was set before him. Because you're being told a lot of things about yourself. So what does it do for you, the fact that he purchased joy as a, as a lock, full payment? And it's because he sees you as worth dying for. You are the joy. I am the joy. We are the joy set before Jesus to endure the cross, to take our pain, our sin, our penalty, and take it on fully. Jesus thinks we are worth dying for. Therefore, we are only able to endure our own trials because he endured a trial that produced such a joy, that accomplished something. If Jesus didn't go to the cross for the joy set before him, there is no possibility for us to have joy in our trials. Because if he didn't see us as, as beautiful enough to die for, to make us beautiful and glorified and whole, if he didn't think that you were worth dying for, then every trial you go through and I go through is a double trial. Because A, we'll wonder, why am I going through this? And B, you'll wonder, does God really love me? And friends, I'm here to tell you that the high king has made up his mind about you and you are the joy that was set before him. And therefore, run the race marked out for you a race that's hard. And yeah, we're sinners, but boy, we are sufferers. Because there you'll find joy. Because he loves us, he went into the greatest trial of all time. He he took the cup of God's wrath and drank it deeply to zero, empty, paid for, so that we can have joy in our trials to make us more whole. Let's pray. Lord, all those who sow weeping will go out with songs of joy. That's what Psalm 126 says. And so this very day, give us courage for that because of the fact that we look at the cross, we see sorrow and joy and love flowing mingled down. And it demands our soul, our life, our all. Lord, for those um, who are in the thick of suffering, would you be a great comfort to them? And whatever is not from you and that was said today, let it fall to the ground. You're a God of comfort and of joy. And as we go through whatever trial marks our lives, remind us that you are king and we follow the king who said, you are worth dying for. You are the joy set before me. Therefore, count it all joy. It's only possible if Christ, you are on the throne and you are making all things new. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. You are the joy set before me. Therefore, Count it all joy. 
It's only possible if Christ, you are on the throne and you are making all things new. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.